Welcome to Paul's Podcast. Here you can listen to Paul's preaching from Crossroads Baptist Church. This is a ministry devoted to studying the Word, obeying the Word, and teaching the Word. Here's Paul. All right, well, it was, it was the evil uh, Nazi propagandist. Actually, Augustina, would you mind grabbing me some water? Yeah, would you mind doing that? That'd be so sweet of you. I appreciate it. Um, it was the evil Nazi propagandist by the name of Joseph Goebbels who said, if you repeat a lie often enough, people will believe it, and you will even come to believe it yourself. This is a common political tactic, uh, but it happens in everyday life as well. If you hear something enough, you will start to think that it's true. Uh, A perfect example of this among Christians is regarding the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth in the Bible. Now, wouldn't it be the most ironic prank that the devil ever played on us if he could get us to believe a lie about the Spirit of Truth? (laughs) That would be like the most ironic trick he's ever played on us. And I believe he's definitely succeeded in that. So what I want to do is I want to set aside just a handful of Sundays uh, to lay out the truth about the Holy Spirit. Now, the, one of the first questions I want to uh, ask you is, is this. It sounds like a simple question, but it's worth thinking about. Um, did you know that it is possible to have the right answer? Raise your hand. Did you know that's possible? Nope. Yeah, you guys know that's possible? Do you know it's possible to have the right answer? That, that, that's, that, seriously, that, that's an important question to settle for yourself. Uh, because what the world teaches today, now the world teaches that anything is possible, right? If you put your mind to it, you know, you really believe in yourself that anything is possible. Don't they teach that? That's what they teach. From school right on up through the, uh, the mecca of all education, of course, we mean Hollywood, um, they, that's where they teach that if you believe in it, anything's possible. Anything, of course, but knowing the truth about anything. Now, that's not possible. It's not possible, as far as the world is concerned, to know the absolute truth about anything. As far as their doctrine is concerned, that's really the only thing that is not possible. Uh, but we believe that we have God's word, so it is possible to actually know what the truth is. And that's such an important, in fact, even today, among people who we consider themselves intellectual, they actually take great pride in not taking any position on something. When they say, well, you know, I can see the, the pluses of this side, I can see the pluses of this argument, you know, and that, that becomes their position, that appears, or they make that to appear as if that's the elevated, more mature position. And that's not true at all. Uh, that's actually a, a cowardice position. Uh, the, the right thing to do would be to be able to admit, if you don't know the answer to something, that's, that's great. Oh, thank you so much. That's wonderful to admit that. That takes a lot of courage and a lot of honesty to admit if you don't know the answer. Uh, but I think the, the goal is to find the answer, to find what the truth is. But to live in this middle world where we can just never really know, uh, I don't think that we have to live there because we have the Bible. Why would God 
give us the Bible, take the trouble of preserving it, and people literally give their lives so that we can hold this Bible in our hands, so that we can just never know what the truth is? It is possible for you to know the right answer on anything. Now, some things are going to be really hard. And there might be things that we won't know till we get to heaven. But eventually, we will get to the right answer. It is possible to know what the truth is. So the question is, to begin with, do you want to believe something simply because the propaganda has been repeated enough times or because it's actually true? You really got to settle that question for yourself. Do you want to believe in something simply because it got repeated enough times to you? Or do you want to believe it because it's actually true? As we always say, bad doctrine hurts people, doesn't it? And this is certainly the case where the Holy Spirit is concerned. So why is this subject important? Why is it important that we understand how the Holy Spirit works? Well, the Holy Spirit is the one who comforts you. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides your life. The Holy Spirit is the one who teaches you the Bible. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts you of sin. The Holy Spirit is the one who strengthens you to serve. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings out fruit in your life. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives you victory over, the, over sin. And the Holy Spirit is the one who seals your salvation. I mean, he is the one that is directly involved with your life on a day-to-day -day basis. Talk about affecting your cornflakes right where you live in everyday life, in all of your relationships, how you understand the Bible what next step you're going to take. The Holy Spirit is directly involved. It's so important that you understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. False doctrine in the area of the Holy Spirit, uh, that is really dangerous because that leads, first of all, to an unbiblical view of spirituality. Namely, to name a couple is mysticism and magic. That's what that often leads to. A unbiblical doctrine can lead to mysticism and magic. And believe me, even though we know that there is a such thing as real magic, Christianity does not believe in magic. We believe in miracles, but not magic. Those are two completely different worlds. They're both real, but those are two completely different worlds. False doctrine on this issue can also lead to confusion as to how it works. And, that, and that's honest, right? It's, it, the thing about the Holy Spirit can be confusing. But when, especially when we get bad information on this, it can lead to a lot of confusion. It can also lead to a lot of disillusionment. Uh, whenever the bad information we get doesn't work, then we're like, oh, well, man, this Holy Spirit thing must not be real, right? Because it didn't work. I tried it, and it didn't work. It also leads to a lot of defeat because it doesn't work. And it can also lead to what, like Paul taught us about in his series, it can lead to a lot of bad fruit. Because you will produce fruit. It'll just be the wrong kind. The false doctrine on this issue can also lead to much worse, which we don't have time to get into, but it can lead to worse. So there are a few things uh, today that we want to clean up, just clean it up, but there's also a few things that we want to clear out. Um, it's like, it's kind of like when you walk into your garage, right? Has this ever happened to you? It's my garage. <laughs> yes, mine too. Mine too, Steve. Maybe we can come and just help each other with this 
desperate problem. Uh, maybe it's not a garage. Maybe it's just like a room in the house. It's like a catch-all. You know, you just throw everything in there like an old Hoover or a child. You just throw everything in there because you don't want to deal with it at the time. We have a drawer in our kitchen that has, ev has everything in it. I mean, from a recipe to like jumper cables. I don't even know how we fit it all in there. Okay, I was looking through there and I found an old guest that came to visit once, was still in the, not really, but uh, it has everything in there. We have instruction manuals for appliances that we no longer own are still in this drawer, right? And what do you do, man? You just stand there, you look at this mess, it's just piles of stuff. If you can imagine walking into the, that garage or that room, it's just stuff stacked on top of things, and there are some things that, that just need to be cleaned up. But there are other things that you need to clear them out, just take them to the tip. And the reason why I use that analogy is because your mind can become a little like that. It can become a little like that drawer in our kitchen. It can become like that garage or that catch-all room in your house. You've got all kinds of doctrines, teachings, advice, notions, stacked up in your mind, gathering dust, cluttering up your mind. You've got sermons, as well as mama told me so, and an Instagram video, all stacked on top of each other over in the corner of your mind, and you don't know what to do with that stuff. It's just kind of lingering there, cluttering up your mind. Do you, you think to yourself, do I throw it out? You know, uh, do, maybe it might be of use to me, I don't know. Maybe it has some sentimental value. Man, it's so nice, and you guys can all agree, when we walk into that garage and it's just spotless and it's so clean and everything is in order, oh, isn't that just so wonderful? Like when you look at the shelves and like all the cans of paint or whatever are all like, you know, half an inch apart and they're all just perfectly on the shelf. Do you guys feel that? Huh? Do you feel the energy of that? Huh? I can tell you do, Nudge. You, you see what I'm talking about. It's wonderful, isn't it? When you walk in there and everything is in its place, everything has a home, it's like walking into Caitlin's bedroom. That's what it's like. Whenever we want a little bit of peace in our lives, we just go into Caitlin's room, even when she's not there. I just like to go in there and sit in there. It's so peaceful because it's so clean. It's so in order. And I like walking there, you know, at, at like 6 in the morning, and she's at her desk with her coffee and her Bible studying Galatians. She's just in there, and it's just like this peaceful oasis, right? Because I'm actually kind of a messy person. And so when I walk into her room, I'm like, man, this is how I'm supposed to be. It's wonderful. Whenever you get everything in order, and so you can put everything kind of where you need them. And this is what I really, really what I want us to do. I want us to kind of open up that door of the garage, right, in our minds. I want us to open up the door, and I kind of want to clean out our doctrinal garages a little bit, because we've got some stuff stacked up in there that really doesn't need to be there. So we need to have a good clear out. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to do exactly what you do when you are faced with a mess like this. You just jump right in the middle. You just grab the first big thing that you can find, and you clear it out so that you can make some space. So we're not going to start in any particular order. We're just going to jump in, and we're going to grab kind of the biggest item. We're going to grab that old mattress that's wedged in the middle, and we're just going to pull it out today. And today we're going to talk about the spiritual gift of tongues right talk about jumping right in the middle we're going to talk about the spiritual gift of tongues 
So what is the gift of tongues? Today when we hear the phrase gift of tongues, I'm just going to play a short video because when we hear today the gift of tongues, this is often what we think of. Now that's typically what people think of when they think of the gift of speaking in tongues is one of those things. You notice the, the, even the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, the, the highest position you can have in the church but without being the queen or the king now, uh, believes that he believes in speaking in tongues, does so every single morning in his time of prayer. So what is this gift, right? Are, are, are we seeing the thing? I mean, is this what we should be doing every day? Should we be praying in tongues like the archbishop? What is this gift of tongues? Uh, well, the first thing that I want us to see about this, first of all, it is a, uh, it is a human language. Uh, is it, this is the question, is it a human language uh, or is it, as some people would say, an ecstatic utterance, right? That's really the nice, more technical way to put it. Now, even they themselves, the people who hold that doctrine, they themselves call it gibberish. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that as a pejorative term. I'm not saying that to be derogatory. That's a word that they use. So if I use that term, it's not to be mean to them. That's a word that they use sometimes. Instead of this word or this phrase that's hard to say, which is ecstatic utterance. That's the technical term. Uh, so is it a human language or an ecstatic utterance? Is it a sign for unbelievers or is it a sign for being filled with the Spirit? Is it a public service or is it a private practice? Is it to build the body or to build the believer? What is this gift of tongues? So first, let's look at what it actually is. What is the nature of this gift? In other words, what are they actually doing or supposed to be doing when they utilize this gift? So the first thing I want us to look at is Acts chapter 2, as Paul read to us. Can we go back there and just take a look at this? Because the first thing that we're going to see about this gift is that the gift of tongues is the supernatural ability to speak a human language, right? What you saw there, that minister by the name of Kenneth Copeland that was up there, what he was speaking was, was not a human language, right? He was just speaking gibberish. There, there, was, there was no meaning at all to the words. As they will tell you themselves, they don't understand what they're saying when they do that. But the gift of tongues is actually uh, the supernatural ability. In other words, you didn't previously learn. It'd be as if as I suddenly was able to speak Spanish, but I didn't learn Spanish previously. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, he gifted me the ability to speak in a human language. Now, why do I say that? When you look in Acts chapter 2, it says, And when on the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven, a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and cloven tongues, obviously, because that's the gift that the Holy Spirit is about to give them. It sat on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they began to speak with other Tongues. Do you see that word right there? In, in verse 4, he, they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. And now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and they were confounded. Why were they so confused by this? Why, the, why were they astonished at this? 
That's what the word confounded means. It says, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Note that word, language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Behold, are not these which speak Galileans? How hear we every man his own tongue, wherein we were born? And then it gives the whole list of all of these Gentile nations from where they came from, these Jewish, Jewish people, where they were scattered abroad in all these Gentile nations and have now come home for Pentecost. And he says in we, verse 11, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. So uh, let's look at some of the words in this passage just to clarify. The first word that I want you to note that you see in verse 4 and in verse 8 is the word tongues. Uh, what does this word? So us utilizing our normal Bible study principles, I did a little word study. We go to the Strong's Concordance, and this is the Greek word, which is glossa, and this means the tongue, by implication, a language. Do you see that? So that's what the word means. It is a language. And so that gives us part of the story, right? But that's not conclusive, is it? We need a little bit more. We need more than that, because maybe it's an angelic language, could still be a language, right? But maybe it's an angelic language. What does it mean by language? So let's look at the word language, because that's in verse 6. And the word language, according to the Strong's Concordance, is, it says a mode of discourse, i.e. a dialect, a language, or a tongue. Okay, so that gives us a little bit more, but it doesn't really help us to conclude. So for confirmation... I want us to look at all of the words surrounding these words to get the context. First, they said is this word, they said Galileans, that you see in verse 7. It says, aren't these men Galileans? Right? That was the question they asked, meaning these guys don't normally speak our language. Right? Do you see that? These guys don't speak our language because they're Galileans. But also the words our own that's connected with tongues and language that you see in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 11, they're saying these guys are speaking our own language. Do you notice that? In verse 6, verse 8, and verse 11, they talk about our own language, the language that belongs to us. So what language are they speaking? They're speaking the one that belongs to them. But also you have the phrase, wherein we were born. Right? You see that in verse 8. It says these guys are speaking the language from the place that I was born in. Now that starts to get pretty conclusive. Right? And then, if that was not enough, verses 9-11, it actually lists the very places of the languages that they are speaking. Right? It lists 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 50, at least 15 different places that represent the languages that are being spoken that these people are hearing. And some of the languages might overlap as some of those places might speak the same language. So it actually tells us that these people are speaking human languages. They are not speaking angelic languages. They are speaking human languages. And the biggest tip of all is that the men who are listening, they can what? They can hear them, and they can, they can understand them. They know what they're saying. It's pretty easy to tell when someone can speak Spanish, right? 
if you have a Spanish speaker and they say he's speaking Spanish and I can understand what he's saying so then we have another confirmation if you turn over to 1st Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10 I've actually got it up on the screen for you 1st Corinthians chapter 12 verse 10 when Paul's talking about the spiritual gifts he says to another uh, who works miracles to another prophecy to another discerning spirits and to another he says kinds of tongues do you see that kinds of tongues and to another the interpretation of tongues so what does this word kinds mean can you see that this word kinds as you can see there it, it talks specifically about the country that you were born in the diversity generation do you see this word that I'm pointing out there to you the word kindred is what that word kind refers to in other words, it's the language of your kin, K-I-N. The, the language of your offspring. It's, the, it's exactly what they mentioned in Acts chapter 2. It's the language wherein you were born, right? That's what it means when it talks about kinds of tongues. It's talking about a human language. That's the nature of it. So these passages clearly define for us the nature of this supernatural gift. This gift of tongues is a human language and it is not an ecstatic utterance or gibberish that nobody can understand. There is no verse in the entire Bible that would suggest that speaking in tongues is what we saw in that video not one verse in the whole Bible do you ever see any example of someone speaking gibberish under the power of the Holy Spirit there is not one single verse in the entire Bible where you see any instruction on someone speaking a tongue that is gibberish every time that you see it because quite frankly the only times that tongues is really taught is in Acts 2 and then also in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Those are the only two places that you find it mentioned. And every time you hear it talked about, there is no reference to gibberish or an ecstatic utterance. So the first thing that we've seen, I want you to go, go back and look at 1 Corinthians, because I want to. it has a number of things to teach us about this tongue's gift. It's very interesting. And the first thing that we've already seen is that this gift is a human language and not an angelic language. Now, why do people say that this is a angelic language? Why would they say that? Well, I want to take you to the place where they find that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. If you turn over there real quick. First Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. should be up there for you. He says, And though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Whoa. Wait, wait a minute. What's that? He says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I have not charity, that I'm become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Right? And he goes on with this thing here, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have faith so I could remove mountains and I have not charity, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. 
and the people say, see, there is a such thing as the tongue of angels. And, and that's what we're speaking. Now, even if you could prove that, one Bible verse is not enough to create a doctrine, uh, but you can't even prove that much. Okay? Uh, the first thing, every time we see angels in the Bible, they're always speaking a known language. There is no evidence that angels speak anything other than what we understand. Uh, there's no evidence to that whatsoever. But let's just take a quick look at this passage. This passage uh, used uh, to teach that there's an angelic language, what does it actually say? In order to understand what this passage actually says, I want you to read it backwards. That's the best way to really understand what this is saying, okay? Now, just follow with me. Now, look at what Paul says, and I'm going to ask you some questions. First of all, going from the bottom to the top, uh, did Paul give his body to be burned? Did Paul ever do that? No, he didn't. Uh, did Paul bestow all of his goods to feed the poor? No, he didn't. We know, actually, we know how he spent his money. He spent his money on himself and his team as they went around planting churches. He says that very clearly a number of times. In fact, he says that in this book. We know he didn't bestow all of his money to feed the poor. Um, did Paul ever remove mountains? No, I don't think he, I don't think he did that. Uh, did Paul have the gift of prophecy to the extent that he understood all mysteries and had all knowledge? No. no. Uh, did Paul speak with the tongue of angels? Go ahead and say it. <laughs> You're dying to. No. No, he didn't. Of course he didn't. The, this type of speech here is called hyperbole. Remember what we said in Bible study about the need for context? Context is key, and when you take a verse out of context, you can make it mean whatever you want. This thing is called hyperbole. It's the exaggeration on purpose to prove a point. Paul is saying here, he says that even if I were an angel and I spoke to you as an angel, even if I spoke as beautiful as an angel, even if I spoke with the tongue of an angel, he says, but I don't have love in my life, then all I am is just making a lot of noise. Now, that's what Paul is saying. Uh, Paul uses this kind of hyperbole uh, in other places. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, you don't have to turn there, but when he talks to the Galatians about the false gospel that's being, teaching, he, being taught, he says to them, he says, though we or an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel to you, then let him be accursed. He uses the same type of exaggeration. Obviously, an angel's not going to do that. He says, even if an angel came down from heaven and taught you the gospel that is different from what I'm teaching you, you should not believe him. Right? And he's using the same hyperbole here. He's saying, even if I could move a mountain, even if I gave my body to be burned, even if I could speak like an angel to you, if I don't have love in my heart for you, it's meaningless. Now, that's what he's saying. There is no way from this verse that you can prove that it is our responsibility to speak some sort of angelic language. You certainly can't prove the entire doctrine that's been built around this, that that is the very sign that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's saying that even if an angel preached from heaven uh, and it doesn't have love, then it, it is meaningless. So that's his point in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not that angels have another tongue. 
And of course, we can see the clear evidence of that. You don't have to take my word for it. Just go and look every time you see angels in the Bible and look how they speak. Do we see any other language in heaven? We see John even goes up to heaven and he hears all the angels singing. And guess what? He can understand them. They're not speaking a weird language up in heaven. So what else do we learn about this gift? What else do we learn about this gift? Uh, not only is it a human language, but not everybody is supposed to have this gift. Because the gift of tongues is a real gift. It's a real spiritual gift. But it's the supernatural ability to speak a human language. Now that's a real gift, right? But not everybody is supposed to have that gift. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 27 to 31, this is in the same context of Paul talking about spiritual gifts. He says, now you are the body of Christ, but you are members in particular. Do you see that? So you're one body, but you're individuals, right? He says, and God has sent some in the church first. In the first place, he has apostles. Secondarily, there are prophets, right? Thirdly, there are teachers. And then after that, below these, this is like a long list, below those are miracles, and then there's gifts of healing, then there's gifts of helps, gifts of governments, and diversities of tongues. And his question, he asks them, do you see in verse 29? He says, now, is everybody an apostle? Go ahead and answer that. No. Uh, is everybody a prophet? No. Is everybody a teacher? It, does everybody work miracles? No. Does everyone have the gift of healing? Does everybody speak with tongues? Do you see how that? Do you see that? Does everybody have the ability to interpret? He says, but covet earnestly the best gifts. He says, what you should covet are the very best gifts. And that's the other thing that you look, that you see there, is not only does he say that not everybody's supposed to do it. He says, but you should cover the best gifts. And if we look at that list, the gifts of tongues is the last on the list it's the worst of the gifts if I can say it that way but the best of the gifts is, is apostles and prophets and teachers he says and then after that that's when you get into the miracles and the, I mean especially the, the gifts of helps right someone just being a servant that's a much better gift in the list than speaking in tongues. But today what you've seen is they've taken the gift of tongues and they put it at the top of the list. And they said, now this is the sign that you're the real deal if you can speak in tongues. But when Paul talks about it, it's last. And he says you should covet the best ones. Not everybody is supposed to have this gift and tongues is the least of this gift. Another thing that we see is that it, the Bible tells us that tongues at some point will no longer be in use. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, you're just carrying on from chapter 12 into chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. It says, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Now when that word fail, it doesn't mean that they will fail in the sense of error. It means that they will fail in the sense of being abolished, right? To be done away, or no longer in use, right? That's what that means. Uh, a word that we use today is, it will cease. It will, it will become a time when it will cease. 
So it says charity will never cease. It will never be abolished. It will never come to an end. But whether there are prophecies, they will cease and come to an end. And whether there be tongues, they will cease. Whether there's knowledge, it shall vanish away. Now people debate this a lot. They debate about this particular verse a lot. When it says, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part is done away. And what does that mean? When is tongues going to cease? That's what people want to know. If we agree that there is a spiritual gift, then we want to know when is that gift going to cease? And that is the wrong question. <laughs> That's the wrong question. The real question is, what is the nature of the gift? Because if you decide, according to the Bible, that the true nature of this gift is the ability to supernaturally speak a human language, well, then do you really need to worry about when it ceases? Do you know a lot of people that have that ability? Anybody? Know anybody that has a supernatural ability to speak Spanish? You know anybody that has a supernatural ability to speak German, Swahili? No, we don't really see that around very much these days. Now, they're doing it in Acts 2. They're doing it, aren't they? Right? They're doing it, and they use that gift. That was a supernatural gift. You know anybody that can do that? We don't really see that. In fact, one of the earliest books that Paul wrote was 1 Corinthians. It's one of the earliest books that he writes. You know, he deals with spiritual gifts in Romans and Ephesians that he wrote much later. Do you know he never even mentions them? Tongues are not even mentioned when he deals with spiritual gifts in those books. So you can debate all you want about when it's supposed to cease. Some people say, well, when the Bible's completed, we don't need tongues anymore. Some people say, no, it's when Jesus comes back. And I say, well, if a gift is real, you will see it. And in, I've been in the ministry for, I don't know, 30 years now. I've never met anybody that has the supernatural ability to speak a human language. Never. If you come across somebody that does, hey, you let me know. So we can debate that. Maybe another time we can talk about what those words mean and get into the word studies. But hey, I'm just saying when you look at what the nature of the gift is, it becomes pretty clear whether it's here or not. So the gift of tongues also, and this is a very important one to understand the nature of the gift as well. The gift of tongues is a sign to unbelievers, not for believers. Listen to me now. The gift of tongues was a sign not for believers. It was a sign for unbelievers. Let me show you. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22. What does it say? I don't want you to think that I'm trying to sway you one way or the other. I'm just showing you what it says. It says, wherefore tongues are for a sign, what? Not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. Do you see that? So what does that mean? How in the world is tongues a sign? What is that? That's what the people say that study these things. They say that tongues was a sign gift. How is it a sign? Okay, I want to show you. How is this gift a sign? Uh, first of all, the supernatural power that comes along with this gift 
it is a confirmation. This gift is a confirmation of God's power. Uh, look, you can see on the screen here, Mark chapter 16 and verse 20. The gifts were a confirmation. It says, and they went forth and they preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with what? With signs following, right? Now, listen, you guys can certainly understand the difficult situation that these poor people were in when the word of God was first preached in the first century. These people, these poor people, they, they had no Bible, did they? They had an Old Testament. They had 39 books of their Bible, but they didn't have the 27 of the New Testament that you and I have. If we want to know if some preacher is of God, all we have to do is just check and make sure it lines up with this, and then we know, right? They did not have that. So God established what are called sign gifts, gifts that whenever they would preach, then Paul could heal people. He could cast out demons. He could speak with tongues. He could do many of these, what they call apostolic gifts. And then everybody would know that this guy is the real deal and he represents God when he speaks. Are you following with me? That they were a sign. They were a confirmation. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 right up here. What, what does it say? It says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. So the gospel was first spoken by the Lord, and then it was confirmed unto us by them which heard him, that's the apostles, God also bearing them witness, how? With signs and wonders and diverse miracles and the gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. That's how God bore witness to these apostles is he gave them these signs and wonders and miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit so that everybody would know that they were the real deal. Great example of that was whenever Paul was stranded on the Isle of Malta after the shipwreck and they're building the fire and there was a serpent in the fire that reached up and bit Paul's hand, right? And all the people, the, the locals are like, oh, he's a dead man. We've seen that happen before. He's a dead man. Paul shakes it off into the fire, and he just walks around, and he's fine. And they're watching him to see if his arm swells up, if he falls down dead, and nothing happens to him. And they're like, oh, my gosh, this guy is like from God, right? This is what these confirmation gifts did for the apostles. You know, it says that whenever Peter would walk by, people would lay down in his shadow and get healed from their sicknesses. Because this man was God's representative. They know that the words he's speaking come from God. These are called sign gifts. So first of all, this is a sign gift that it confirms uh, their word that it is from God. But listen, this particular gift of tongues was also not just a sign of authority. It was also a sign of judgment. Now let me show you what I'm talking about. If you look in where Paul is teaching about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he, he shares this with the Corinthian church. In verse chapter 14, verses 20 to 22, I've got it right here. He tells them, he says, listen guys, when it comes to your understanding, I, I don't want you to be children. He says, I, when it comes to understanding, I need you to grow up in these things. He, remember that the whole letter of 1 Corinthians is a huge rebuke. 
because they're in all kinds of trouble. And he said, listen, I don't want you to be like children when it comes to your understanding. When it comes to your understanding, I want you to be grown-up men. He says, don't you understand, in other words, that in the law, verse 21, now he's referencing Isaiah 28, verse 11 and 12, but he says, he, he quotes it right here. He says, don't you understand that in the law it's written, with men of other tongues and other, other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. That's what he means when he says it's a sign to those that believe not. It's a sign of judgment. Now think about what I'm saying here. When the Holy Spirit, now follow me now, this is an important part. When the Holy Spirit came down at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, do you realize the significance of that event? This was the day, okay? This was a Jewish holiday. All the men that are in that town are what? Yes, they are Jewish, right? We're talking matzo balls everywhere, okay? These men are Jewish. And this was not only that, was the, but the promise of the Holy Spirit, according to Peter in chapter 3, this was the promise of the Holy Spirit that was given to the Jews. It was a Jewish promise on a Jewish holiday in Jerusalem to Jewish men. And whenever this promise is fulfilled, what language are they speaking? No, they are speaking the, the language of Gentiles. All these countries that these men, that it lists off the 15 different places, they're all Gentile countries. They come out there and they're speaking this Gentile language to them. Why would he do that? And that's the reason why. Go back to Acts chapter 2. Look what it says here. It says they were all amazed. It was noise abroad. It says, they were all amazed and marveled, saying one another, behold, are not these Galileans? Galileans. He says in verse 8, how hear we every man in our own tongue where we were born? And it says, it says uh, in verse 12, and they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another. What did they say to each other? Do you see it in verse 12? Do you see it? They were all amazed and were in doubt, saying to one another, what did they ask? What meaneth this? Do you, do you hear what's going on? Do you hear how the, the wheels are turning in their heads? They're speaking this Gentile language to them, and they're not asking how could this happen. They're asking, what does this mean? What does this mean that he's speaking to us? They're not amazed necessarily that it is happening. They're amazed of what the meaning of this might be. Why would he speak to us in Gentile languages? And the reason why he does is to fulfill what he said. Because what happened at the cross, guys? The Jews rejected their Messiah. And that's what Peter's message is all about. This same Christ you nailed to the cross and you have rejected. In chapter 3, he does it again. He says, this is the Christ which you guys have crucified. They have rejected their Messiah and so this is a sign of judgment that, that to the Jews, the Gentiles, 
were dirty sinners and heathens. They called them dogs. That's the way they referred to the Gentiles. And so whenever Christ comes, whenever the Holy Spirit comes in this promise to speak unto them, he speaks to them with men of other tongues as a sign to people who don't believe. Because he's saying, you guys have rejected me, so now, in other words, I tried to speak to you in your own language and you would never hear me. So now I'm speaking to you in men of other tongues and now I'm going to take this gospel that you've rejected and who does he go to? To the Gentiles. That's exactly where he goes. He tries to speak, preach the gospel first for about the first six chapters uh, in the book of Acts and the whole rest of it, he's packing his bags and heading toward the Gentile world. That's the whole reason why he does that. That's what this gift is a sign of. It is a sign that the Jews have rejected Christ. And now he will not speak to them in their language. He will speak to them in this Gentile language. That's why these guys are like, what does this mean? This is so weird that he would speak to us in a Gentile language. So that's why Paul reminds them, when you got all these Corinthians that are trying to show off their spiritual gifts in Corinth, and he's like, guys, don't you understand what that gift was for? Don't you remember what the law says, that he would speak to us with men of other tongues as a sign to people that don't believe? And they're like, oh, right. That's what that gift is for. So you have to understand, it's not just a sign of authority, it's also a sign of judgment. And you see, Paul had to do that several times in his ministry. He said it was very necessary that the gospel should come to you first, to the Jews in the synagogue, but you guys have judged yourself not worthy of it. So he would shake off his clothes and shake off the dust of his feet as a sign to them that I'm going now to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what this gift is for. Now let me ask you something important, okay? What, what I'm describing to you here does that sound like a personal, private prayer practice that is meant for your personal edification? An apostolic sign that was given to unbelieving Jews of the fact that they had rejected Christ and that now he was going to the Gentiles? Okay, last thing here. Also we see in this that the gift of tongues has rules. And in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, Paul actually gives us the rules of how we use tongues. Now, we don't have time to read the whole passage because it goes from verse 27 all the way down to 35 in 1 Corinthians 14. So I'll just give you the rules real quick, all right? Uh, first of all, only two or three people are allowed to do it at all. For, through the whole service, only two or three people are allowed to do it. And when they do it, they have to do it one at a time. So you have one person comes up and they speak in a human language. And then, and then of course, the, the next one is that someone has to interpret. Because that's the only way Paul says that anyone benefits from it. And so someone has to interpret. And the rule is, is that if there's no interpreter, then there's no tongues. He says if there's no interpreter, then you should keep quiet. Right? And the same thing goes for the prophets. If someone says they have a prophecy then only two or three at a time, and in course. They have to one at a time, but only two or three at the most, right? And the last rule he gives, and this is the one that's hardest, no women, he says. The women can't do it at all. Now those are the rules. Is that what we see going on today? 
but the people that say that this gibberish is the spiritual gift that's the sign that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that they're claiming that, even though there's not a single verse in the Bible that would suggest that. But even more than that, are they even following the rules? Only three people at the most can do it at any one service. And even then they have to do it one at a time. And someone has to interpret everything that they say. And if there's no interpreter, they're not allowed to do it. And no women are allowed to participate. Now I promise you, especially today, even if they thought it was an ecstatic utterance, I guarantee if you enforce those rules, people would lose interest in this gift really fast. We'd lose interest in this gift really fast. So it has rules. Now, the, here's the thing. This should be the end of the discussion, really, on this teaching. Because if we accept what the scripture plainly says about tongues, then it's pretty easy to know who has this gift and who doesn't. So how did we get here today? How did we get to the place where we're at today where mainstream preachers teach that the baptism of the Spirit is a separate experience that happens subsequent to your salvation, and the sign of the baptism is that you will speak in tongues, which they themselves call gibberish instead of an actual language? Uh, where did this, what is more properly called an ecstatic utterance, where did this idea come from? That's an important question. Where did we get this second blessing, this secret prayer language? Where did this language of the angels come from? Did it come from a secret sect of disciples in Jerusalem? Ooh. Did it? Did it come from the pulpits of devout churches in London? Did it come, did they crack the code in the austere halls of the seminaries? Was it a cloister of monks who fasted and beat themselves senseless in the desert? Is that the ones who came up with this doctrine? No, I'm afraid this gem of an idea began in the prestigious and highly distinguished farm town of Topeka, Kansas. That's where this idea came from. When you read of the origins of the Pentecostal movement, we have to come to a single man by the name of Charles Far Fox Parham. Parham adhered to the doctrines of the holiness movement that was begat by the doctrines of John Wesley. And this doctrine, his doctrine, taught a works-based salvation. It taught that one could lose your salvation. It taught moral perfectionism that came as the result, you became morally perfect, it came, that came as a result of a second blessing after your salvation that they regarded as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Parham was convinced that there was more to be experienced in his Christian life, so he started Bethel Bible School in Topeka, Kansas, and he put his students, listen to this, he put his students specifically, this is right about 1900 when this happened, it was actually in 1900, the year 1900. And he put his students to the task. He says, I want you guys to identify from the Bible the signs of the second blessing. After reading the book of Acts, they became convinced that speaking in tongues, which they, according to their doctrine in 1900, and this is easily verifiable. I mean, all Pentecostal historians go back to Charles Fox Parham. This is the, their history. 
and it's, uh, they, they know what their doctrine was. When they first taught about tongues, they taught that it was a human language. That's what they, that's what they honestly thought. Because that's what everybody thought in all of church history, thought that tongues was a human language. And Charles Parham Fox taught that it was a human language, but they said that being filled with the Spirit was evidenced by speaking in tongues, which was a human language. And that's what they taught. They thought that was the true sign of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. So the result of this study, according to Parham, was that as they fasted and prayed on New Year's Eve of 1900, the night before 1901, one of his students by the name of Agnes Osman, she's famous, Agnes Osman is famous for the birth of the Pentecostal movement. Um, she asked, she, she was his student, she came up and she asked Parham, she said, can you please lay your hands on me and pray that I would receive the gift of tongues? Now what happened next completely changed the course of church history. Because in Parham's own words, this is his own words, he said, I laid my hands upon her and I prayed. He says, and I have scarcely, I had scarcely completed three dozen sentences when a glory fell on her. A halo seemed to surround her head and face and she began to speak Chinese. And she was unable to speak English for three days. And when she tried to speak English to tell us of her experience, she could only write in Chinese. Parham published the results all over the place, claiming that now missionaries no longer needed to study language the old way because they could now reach people all over the world with this new Pentecost that had arrived in Topeka, Kansas. He sent missionaries to the field, like a hundred of them. He sent missionaries to the field um, and told them to trust their gift. He convinced them that the gibberish they were speaking was actually Chinese and Japanese and Hindi and even German in some cases. He told them don't test it, but just, very, just don't have any doubt, but just trust the Lord and go by faith. And of course, this missionary endeavor ended in terrible and embarrassing failure, as you can imagine. Uh, there's a uh, uh, S.C. Todd from the Bible Missionary Society investigated uh, 18 Pentecostals who went to Japan, China, and India expecting, quote, expecting to preach in, to the natives in those countries in their own tongue and found that by their own admission, in no single instance have they been able to do so. And these and other missionaries returned in disappointment and failure. Pentecostals were compelled at this point to rethink their original view of speaking in tongues. Can you imagine? Now other historians will tell you that these people when they were over there, once they got over there and they discovered as they started speaking their gibberish that they're not speaking Chinese. Can you imagine? They're convinced that they can speak the language. They move to these other countries. Do you even know what the, the boat journey is like to get there? And the historians will tell you that they were absolutely destitute when they were over there. And these people would come back. It was a devastating failure. And when they came back and they discovered, we, we can't speak these languages. Now, in light of this failure, do you know what they did? 
Oh, you can guess what they did. Did they say, oh man, hands up, we were wrong, we must, no, they didn't say that. What to God? What, what did we say the other night in Bible study? We said it's one of the best things you can do is be able to admit when you're wrong. Man, we would totally respect that, wouldn't we? If they say, man, we blew it. We made a mistake. Now we're going to carry on following Jesus. We've been like, cool, man. I mean, that was a rough one, but that's, that's great. Carry on. But they didn't do that. You know what they did? They say, oh, we must have misunderstood uh, this gibberish that we're speaking is not human languages they just changed the definition and they said it's actually an angelic language that nobody can understand nobody before them had ever said that Osman's experience became the prototype experience for millions of Pentecostals who would follow within a decade Within a decade, more than 50,000 people claimed that they had the same experience as Agnes. Another of Parham's students, a man named William J. Seymour, similarly promoted speaking in tongues as a sign of spirit baptism. This ministry, he moved to California, and this ministry became known as the famous Azusa Street Revival of 1906, which everyone knows is the birthplace of the charismatic movement. This was Parham's student that went there. Just over a century later, now you go fast forward when this was written, 100 years later, the Pentecostals and Neo-Pentecostals movement would grow, listen to this, this, this movement would grow to include more than half a billion people. Half a billion people believing what Charles Parham Fox was saying. But who is this guy Charles Parham Fox anyway? Well, first he was a charlatan. He wrote in the newspaper uh, that they had great success on the field. He lied about his findings, and this was obviously not true, but it gets worse. In the fall of 1906, he held a series of meetings in Zion, Illinois, and some months later, five of his followers beat a disabled woman to death in an attempt to drive the demon of rheumatism out of her. On July 19th and 1907, Charles Parham Fox himself was arrested at a hotel in San Antonio, Texas on the charges of sodomy, and he was released from custody four days later. He claimed to be innocent, but his opponents alleged that he wrote a full confession in order to get his release. In 1908, he claimed that he was going to the Holy Land so that he could find Noah's Ark and the Ark of the Covenant. He raised enough money through donations for the expedition, but in the end, he never went. He claimed that he was bugged, and they took his money. Parham also advocated a form of what's called Anglo-Israelism, which taught that white Europeans were actually God's chosen people. He advocated for segregation and taught that the reason for Noah's flood was, was interracial marriages. By the end of his life in 1927, he openly endorsed the Ku Klux Klan. This is the founder of Pentecostalism. This is the founder of Pentecostalism. 
And he is not just the founder, ladies and gentlemen, but historians clearly, I'm talking about Pentecostal historians, label him as the theological architect of the charismatic movement. He's the one that laid out their theology for them. But I wanted you guys to see firsthand that this doctrine that is regularly taught today about the gift of tongues, that the gift of tongues is gibberish or an angelic language, has no basis in scripture. I wanted you guys to see where this teaching actually came from. It does not exist, guys. I say this with all the love in my heart. It is not real. Listen to me now very closely. These guys in Kansas, they made it up. Strangely enough, once that particular point of, you know, this what the gift is, people tend to lose interest in the gift. Now, I'm teaching you this because this teaching today is everywhere. It's all over the place. You guys saw that the Archbishop of Canterbury, which by all accounts is an educated man. He's an educated man. And he, he gets up every morning and does this. I wanted you to see this teaching is everywhere. I'm show, trying to show you that this teaching, I want you to know that what you're looking at whenever you see things like this. So we have a little bit of fun there. You know, we can laugh at that because some of it is funny. You know, I love the robbers thing. The robbers come at you and try to hold you up and pray in tongues and they'll run away. But if you've ever been in a meeting uh, where the children are speaking in tongues, um, it, it becomes not funny anymore. If you've ever been in a meeting where the children are speaking in, in this gibberish, it becomes not funny. And they are teaching the kids, you know, as you see. This, this lady has quite a following. They are teaching the kids to do this. And uh, it's, it's not really that funny, to be honest. And I, I try to be lighthearted about it because, you know, I either have to laugh or I'll cry. Um, so this is what is being taught out there and accepted by a lot of people. And uh, it is so important that you know the truth about how the Holy Spirit works. Uh, believing a lie simply because it's been repeated enough times still makes it a lie. Uh, the gift of tongues is the supernatural ability to speak a human language. It is a sign gift for a very specific purpose and a specific time. So the question is, do you want to believe something simply because the propaganda has been repeated enough times or because it is actually true? So that leads us to another question. If speaking in tongues is not the sign that you've been filled by the Holy Spirit, what is? What is the sign that you've really been filled by the Holy Spirit? And you will get the answer to that question next week. All right? Um, so uh, I guess we're going to have the Lord's Supper here in just a few minutes. I want you guys to take a break, have some coffee, and uh, let's just pray. Thank you for checking out my podcast. I hope you found that an encouragement today. You can come back here for more messages in the future, or if you'd like to, you can check us out on our website. That's crossroadslondon.org, 
where you can find out a bit more about what we believe, who we are and what we do.